2016, an estimated 6.2 million Americans aged 20 years and older were living with heart failure. And 1 million Americans are newly diagnosed with the condition each year. Welcome to CV Deep Dive. In this podcast, we discuss various aspects of cardiovascular disease management and feature key insights from leading medical experts. I'm your host, Dennis Steele. For our initial episodes, we'll be focusing on timely issues in heart failure management. I'm here in the studio with Suzanne Weintraub, who recently spoke with several heart failure experts and is going to share some key takeaways with us throughout the episodes. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here to shed some light on this syndrome that affects so many Americans. Let's start from the beginning. Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit more about what heart failure is? Well, heart failure is a syndrome that occurs when structural or functional changes to the heart limit the ventricles from properly filling with or ejecting blood. Patients with heart failure are primarily classified by left ventricular ejection fraction. The two major types of heart failure are heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. Okay. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on HEFPEF. Which is timely, as HEFPEF accounts for approximately half of heart failure cases and is increasing in prevalence. Whether people realize it or not, they're seeing it all the time. They're seeing it in clinic. They're seeing it in church. They're seeing it at family gatherings. HEFPEF is everywhere. For expert insight on HEFPEF, Suzanne spoke with Dr. John Ryan, an internationally renowned cardiologist practicing at University Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Ryan is director of the University of Utah Pulmonary Hypertension Comprehensive Care Center and medical director of the Cardiovascular Medical Unit at the University of Utah Hospital. Dr. Ryan explained that the clinical course of HEFPEF is diverse, and we'll be walking through a few patient profiles that exemplify different points during the disease course in our discussion today. Here's Dr. Ryan. The disease course of people with HEFPEF is very variable. There are some people who will start noticing exertional dyspnea, shortness of breath on exertion, uh, increased fluid retention, their ankles start to swell up. And that will limit their quality of life, and they won't be able to do as much as they used to be able to do, won't be able to go to as many uh, social events, family outings, hikes, etc. So that's one clinical syndrome of HEFPEF. So this is a patient with new-onset HEFPEF. Are there other patient profiles in HEFPEF? Mm-hmm. Here's Dr. Ryan again. There's quite a variety in terms of what HEFPEF can look like. Other people have a much more aggressive syndrome where they end up becoming acutely short of breath, so volume overloaded that they need to be admitted to the hospital, that they need intravenous diuretics. And then you've something in between where they'll be short of breath for a while and then gradually start gaining weight, gaining fluid, uh, becoming more deconditioned, and then ultimately requiring a heart failure hospitalization to try and get the fluid off. These are patients with acute decompensated and worsening HEFPEF and we'll get back to them later. Right. First, we're going to take a deeper dive into the first patient profile, the patient with new-onset HEFPEF, and examine key aspects of diagnosis and management of HEFPEF 
Suzanne, can you tell us some more details about this patient? I can. This patient, Jane, is an 82-year-old woman. Jane has numerous comorbid conditions, including chronic hypertension, obesity, and type 2 diabetes mellitus. She presents with exertional dyspnea and mild ankle edema and reports sleeping with two pillows. She's independent but has recently experienced difficulty carrying her groceries home from the supermarket. When a patient like Jane presents with signs and symptoms of heart failure... Shortness of breath on exertion, increased fatigue uh, when walking up hills, less exercise capacity. Their legs are more swollen or even their belly is more swollen. Diagnosis of heart failure is primarily a clinical diagnosis involving assessment of a patient's history and physical examination. Dr. Ryan pointed out that patients with HFPEF often have a high burden of comorbidities. Certain comorbid conditions that are known risk factors for the disease should raise suspicion of HFPEF. One of them is hypertension. Long-standing hypertension is the key risk factor for HFPEF. Age is a risk factor for HFPEF. The older we get, um, the higher likelihood you are to get some stiffness of your heart. Then obesity is a risk factor for HFPEF. Diabetes mellitus is a risk factor for HFPEF. And um, actually being sedentary, so not actually doing a whole lot, is a risk factor for HFPEF. So these are the, the main comorbidities. I will also add, however, that also obstructive sleep apnea or obesity hyperventilation syndrome, obesity hypoventilation syndrome. These are also risk factors for HFPEF. So, Suzanne, if a patient presents with symptoms of heart failure and these risk factors, what tests can providers perform to make the diagnosis? An echocardiogram is a key element of the diagnostic workup for HFPEF and will differentiate HFPEF from the other main type of heart failure, HFREF. Left ventricular ejection fraction is usually greater than or equal to 50% in HFPEF, but is 40% or lower in HFREF. An echocardiogram may reveal other abnormalities in cardiac structure and function that support a diagnosis of HFPEF. However, Dr. Ryan explained that echocardiograms of patients with HFPEF may not reveal diastolic dysfunction. Well, most of the symptoms of HFPEF are on exertion. It's uncommon to have dyspnea or shortness of breath at rest in HFPEF, but our echocardiograms are done at rest. So just by having normal diastolic function on a resting echocardiogram, that doesn't rule out HFPEF at all. If a patient has normal diastolic function, are there other parameters on an echocardiogram that can assist in diagnosis of HFPEF? There are. In an initial evaluation of the echocardiogram, Dr. Ryan instead first looks for evidence of cardiac structural remodeling characteristic of HFPEF. I look to see, do they have left atrial enlargement, or is it reported they have left atrial enlargement? Say an area of greater than 20. Should be less than 20. Normally, it's less than 20 in regular people who do not have HFPEF. So that's one of the key things. Then I look at uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. I look to see just how thick is the left ventricle. Is any, either the interventricular septum or the posterior wall, or either of those greater than a centimeter thick. Left atrial enlargement and concentric left ventricular hypertrophy involving thickening and stiffening of the ventricle are key structural changes in HFPEF and develop downstream of sustained pressure overload. 
These changes are distinct from those observed in HEFREF, where volume overload drives left ventricular eccentric remodeling involving dilation and wall thinning. So, Suzanne, what are some other components of the diagnostic workup? Well, another key aspect of HEFPEF diagnosis is measurement of natriuretic peptide levels. Suggested cutoff values to exclude heart failure in outpatients are less than 125 picograms per milliliter for NT-pro-BNP and less than 35 picograms per milliliter for BNP. Importantly, natriuretic peptide levels are often lower in patients with HEFPEF than in patients with HEFREF and may actually be normal in up to a third of patients with HEFPEF. This may be especially evident in obese patients or in patients with symptoms only on exertion. That's really useful information. Now that we've touched on key elements of the HEFPEF diagnosis, can you tell us a bit about how the disease is managed? Well, one of the key things to remember is that management of HEFPEF differs from that of HEFREF. Guideline-directed management of HEFREF includes numerous pharmacologic therapies that have been shown to reduce morbidity and mortality in patients with that disease. By contrast, clinical trials of HEFREF therapies have been largely neutral for primary endpoints when studied in patients with HEFPEF. As Dr. Ryan explains, this does not translate to a lack of management options for HEFPEF. I think a common misconception of HEFPEF patients in the medical community is, one, is that there's not a whole lot you can do for them. And that's just not true. There is treatment available. It's just different to the treatment that's available for HEFREF. So for heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, we're very comfortable prescribing beta blockers, ACE inhibitors. I have a medicine for someone with HEFREF that will make their heart failure better. I will admit I don't have that for HEFPEF, but that's just one form of treatment. There's so many other forms of treatment. And those treatments are, in particular with HEFPEF, managing the comorbidities, getting their blood pressure under control, getting their diabetes under control, getting their weight down, getting their volume status under control, getting their sleep improved, and uh, getting them exercising, getting them moving. These are all very successful treatments for HEFPEF. According to Dr. Ryan, this isn't the only major misconception in HEFPEF. The second misconception, I guess, or and biggest challenge in particular with HEFPEF is that oftentimes it's kind of lumped together as one, one, one disease, one disease state. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. There is so many different phenotypes of HEFPEF, so many different uh, manifestations of HEFPEF. In fact, recent efforts in HEFPEF research have attempted to phenotype patients with HEFPEF by clinical presentation or pathophysiology. One way that people try and distinguish it at the moment is, is it a pulmonary manifestation? Is it a renal manifestation? Is it metabolic? So, so pulmonary, renal, and metabolic seem to be a way that people look at it right now. While more research is needed to further our understanding of HEFPEF, these phenotypes can assist in selecting a management strategy. Now let's pivot to the second patient profile, that of the acute decompensated patient. Other people, however, have a much more aggressive syndrome where they end up becoming acutely short of breath, so volume overloaded that they need to be admitted to the hospital, that they need intravenous diuretics. Tell us more about this particular patient, Suzanne. Well, this patient, Josephine, is a 70-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department with worsening dyspnea at rest. 
She exhibits several additional signs and symptoms of congestion, including recent weight gain, peripheral edema, rails, orthopnea, and jugular venous distension. Is hospitalization common in patients with HFPEF? It is. Hospitalization can occur frequently throughout the clinical course of HFPEF. In one study, more than 80% of patients with heart failure were hospitalized at least once during a mean follow-up period of 4.7 years from initial diagnosis. The median number of hospitalizations was three. And in patients like Josephine, a hospitalization is a pivotal event. There is no doubt that uh, hospitalization is the worst thing that can happen in someone with HFPEF. As Dr. Ryan described, this is due to the relationship between hospitalization and mortality. Once you're hospitalized, your mortality at least doubles. And your in-hospital mortality is actually almost 5%. Almost 5% people admitted with uh, heart failure hospitalization from HFPEF won't survive the hospitalization. I mean, that's huge. Uh, the mortality then uh, continues to grow over the course of the year and the years ahead so that if you are hospitalized for heart failure secondary to HFPEF, your five-year mortality is at least 50%, 5-0, and some people estimate it up into the 70%, 70 70%. A hospitalization event should therefore motivate a reevaluation of the plan of care for patients with HFPEF and represents an opportunity to optimize therapy. Did Dr. Ryan explain how he adjusts the plan of care for patients with HFPEF following a hospitalization? He did. He described changes to both therapies and self-management. Here's Dr. Ryan. The most important aspects of care that I focus on after someone is discharged from hospital is blood pressure management, making sure that their blood pressure is very well controlled, less than 130 over 80 at least, Volume management, making sure that they're limiting their fluid intake to a certain extent, but also managing their fluid intake with the appropriate use of diuretics to try and keep fluid off. Another way of doing this is by weight management, by trying to uh, see, make sure that they track their weight. Another thing is actually getting people active. Part of the reason that hospitalization can be so devastating is because people lay in bed for a couple of days or, or even up to a week. And really, people need to get moving. And uh, so trying to get people to, to exercise after hospitalization is important. This may require some referral to some physical therapy or some rehab, etc. Uh, but this is just a, another key component. Also, um, one of the things which plays a key role in HFPEF management is actually sleep quality, and in particular determining if someone has obstructive sleep apnea. And if they do have obstructive sleep apnea or hypoxia at night, that it's been adequately treated. Equally important to optimizing care following a hospitalization is taking steps to prevent hospitalizations. We have to do everything we can to try and prevent hospitalization or decrease the risk of hospitalization. One way to prevent initial hospitalizations and hospital readmissions is to recognize symptomatic worsening that can trigger decompensation. And this brings us to our final patient profile where they'll be short of breath for a while and then gradually start gaining weight, gaining fluid, uh, becoming more deconditioned, and then ultimately requiring a heart failure hospitalization to try and get the fluid off. Let me tell you a little bit about this patient. Susan is a 73-year-old woman 
who was recently hospitalized with worsening dyspnea and orthopnea. She received guideline-directed medical therapy during her hospitalization, including decongestive therapy, but presents at her follow-up visit with ongoing fatigue and dyspnea on exertion. She has some symptoms and signs of congestion, including jugular venous distension and lower extremity edema, but she does not have a third heart sound, murmur, or rails. In high-risk patients like Susan, beyond optimization of therapy at follow-up, Dr. Ryan recommends regular evaluation of objective measures to monitor for worsening symptoms. Those objective measures may be a six-minute walk test at each clinic. Obviously, functional class at each clinic visit is important. Finding out from the patient how much can you do and is that going downhill, but then also having an objective assessment. So a six-minute walk test is a useful way of doing that. Wait, what is a six-minute walk test? And what does he mean by functional class? I'm glad you asked. These measures provide information about a patient's functional and exercise capacity. In the six-minute walk test, a patient walks on a flat surface at a normal pace for six minutes, during which various basic measurements of cardiac function and heart failure symptoms are evaluated. Functional class refers to New York Heart Association functional class. NYHA class is a clinical assessment of physical activity limitation and is an independent predictor of risk for mortality. Oh, okay. So it makes sense that providers can track changes in these measures over time. Are there other tests that can be performed to detect worsening? There are. As Dr. Ryan explains, tools used in the diagnostic workup, natriuretic peptide biomarkers and echocardiogram, are also useful objective measures of worsening. Then having some sort of testing that, again, will be objective, such as a BNP or N-terminal pro-BNP, in particular if you've had one before so that you can kind of compare the trend of the BNPs. And then also echo. See if there are changes in echo that make you concerned that things are getting worse. For example, is the right ventricle getting bigger? Is the left atrium getting bigger? Uh, is there now signs that the patient has developed pulmonary hypertension? So are the estimated right ventricular pressures higher uh, as a manifestation of increased pulmonary artery pressures? Also, what their weight is doing. Is their weight going up? These are things that can give you some warning as to um, how significant their HEFPEF is and whether or not they're at risk of uh, hospitalization. And that was our final patient profile. So we've concluded our journey through HEFPEF. Suzanne, Give us some key takeaways. I want to emphasize that HEFPEF is a highly prevalent disorder and that it requires careful diagnosis and management informed by disease phenotype and clinical course. Here's Dr. Ryan's key takeaway for us. It is incredibly common. It's not a normal manifestation of aging. And guess what? It is treatable. It's just not treatable the way that we have become used to treating heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It's just a different type of treatable. You've got to manage the comorbidities, and you've got to keep people out of hospital. And if you do those two things, people do very well. Thank you for listening to CV Deep Dive. I'm Dennis Steele. And I'm Suzanne Weintraub. And we hope you'll join us again. This podcast was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and the speakers were compensated for their time. The statements in this podcast reflect the medical expertise and opinions of the presenters.